Uh, so Genesis chapter 1, and really we're going to cover the content of chapter 1 through 2, 3, chapter 2, verse 3. But we're not going to cover that line by line. We just simply don't have time. But we are going to cover Genesis um, from here until next Advent. We'll have a few breaks here and there uh, along the way. But it's basically four parts. The first part, as you can see on the screen maybe behind me, is part one, which is beginnings. Very creative. We are very creative in what we do here. So Genesis part one is beginnings. The next part is Abraham, the life of Abraham. The next part is going to be the life of Jacob. And then the final part will be the life of Joseph. And so it's about 36 sermons. We're covering 50 chapters. So we're going to move at a bit of a pace. This won't be like the book of John where we took like the whole time that we've been around as a church to cover the book of John. Um, instead, we are going to uh, just simply go through this kind of episodically instead of uh, verse by verse. So um, why would we tackle the book of Genesis? That may be a question you've asked. Um, I've asked that question, and here's the simple truth. Many of your questions that you may not even know you're asking, Many of the questions that you have asked or will ask, whether you're a teenager or an aging adult, they, the answers to those questions can be found in the book of Genesis. Some of, the, some of the questions that can come up, like, who are we? What does God expect of us? Who is God? What is he up to? Why is there suffering in the world? I would imagine you've asked that question a lot in the last almost two years. Um, why is work so hard? What is a good understanding of marriage? Um, why is parenting difficult? I've never asked that question. I don't know how you parent your children, but it's easy for us. We have pastor's kids, don't you know? Um, what, why is there suffering? Why, why do we, do I, wait, here's one. Why do I want what is not good for me? Why do children suffer? Also there in the book of Genesis. And today's question is a great kind of, um, I don't know, bookend to what Cassie just prayed. How are you going to make sense of whatever hits you in 2022? How are you going to make sense? That's today's question for today's passage in Genesis 1, which is probably not what you're thinking as far as like, okay, Genesis 1, the creation of the universe, and I'm asking you, it's a great tie-in to Genesis 1 to ask yourself the question, how are you going to handle the trouble, the, the, the triumph of 2022? What is it that you're going to see 2022 through? What lens? I would say, and I would contend that the answer to the question of how you're going to handle 22 is found in how you view Genesis 1. And, two. and you might be thinking, okay, how are those two related? Most of the time you look through Genesis 1 and 2, we have been trained in the modern world to look at it through one of three lenses. The first one is the scientific lens. You know the scientific lens, the ones that, um, that, that you read about in your textbooks in your school, if you're in public school. It's the one really that we've heard all about on the news for the last couple of years. It's the, it's the, the lens of percentages, well, there's a percentage of this and there's a percentage of that. And, 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 and it's all coming together in likelihoods. That if we can just reproduce these things of likelihoods, this is likely what we can predict will be in the future. You can, 
You can translate that into masks or vaccines or viruses or hospitalizations. It's all percentages. That's what the world that we've been living in really for the last two years, but really for much, much longer than that. Again, cost-benefit analysis. Am I going to go out? Am I going to come to church? There's a cost-benefit analysis to that about COVID, about everything that you can kind of start thinking of. There's a percentage that you're living in. And if you're lucky, if you're fortunate, things will work out in your favor. That's kind of the lens of science and my, my simplistic viewpoint. Many of you engineers and, 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 and scientists in here are going, okay, that's terrible. I understand. I'm just being simplistic and broad brushing. So just bear with me. That's number one. The other perspective is a historical view. Fox News and CNN and others, they, you're all trying to figure out who has the truth. And you, if you're like me, you go, neither. None. Who has the truth? They're all giving you a slant on history as it's unfolding here in 2022 now. Or there's the lens of faith. No matter what the percentages are, there's this theocentric understanding that you have a firm faith in a good God. That no matter what the percentages are, no matter what the narratives may be, I mean, whatever may come, I believe in a good and faithful God. You might be thinking, okay, that sounds good. How does that relate to Genesis 1 and 2? Well, I would say this. There's a historical perspective that we're going to enter into today that we need to enter into so that we can have a good grasp on what Genesis 1 and 2 truly are about. But the historical perspective, you probably have been in this, whether you think it or not. If you've studied Genesis 1 at all, you've probably landed in one of several different camps. The young earth creationists. That's a, that's a historical perspective. That is the people that look at Genesis 1 and you go, okay, this is a chronological, literal 24-hour period over which, over six days, not seven, trick question, how many days did God create the earth in, all the earth? It's not seven, it's six, because he rested on the seventh. But nonetheless, if you believe in a historical, literal view, you're a young earth creationist who believe that God designed everything in six literal days. And Genesis 1, therefore, is a chronological account of the unfolding of that creation. Yes, there are problems with that view. Many problems with that view, such as modern science can tell us that there's age in the earth. And you might think to yourself, well, God could have just created an adult or a mature earth, like he created an adult mature Adam. That is one legitimate historical perspective. Absolutely. There's the other one, right? You also, though, with the chronology of the young earth creationists, there is morning and night before there is a sun and a moon. So that kind of presents an issue as well. There's also the other historical viewpoint, and that is not young earth creationists, but old earth creationists. And that is that the days are not literal 24-hour periods, but they're long periods of time, they're ages. And this is really a popular view, particularly in the church, because they're trying to synchronize what they read in the Bible of this 24 or this, this day, that in the first day God did this, and the second day God did this. But they're also looking at science, and perhaps they may be taken by science and gone, you know what? But there's all this age in the earth. There's all these stars that are in the sky. Everything's expanding. Everything, you know, they're, they're taking all the data and they're synchronizing both and going, you know what? The days are probably not literal days. They're just long periods of time over which God did these creative works. There are problems with that view, if you don't know. Like the problem of death. 
How is it that there is death before Genesis 3? You see, if we evolved over millions and billions of years, if you are an old earth creationist, you have to deal with the problem of death being there before there was sin. That's a major issue that many people would have with old earth creationist viewpoint. Those are historical perspectives that if you don't know, those are pretty broad and general, very common understandings of Genesis 1. And then there's the, the scientific perspective, the one that's not necessarily reading the Bible for their primary truth, but instead reading um, nature. And they're using the scientific method to understand that 14 plus billion years ago, we started with this Big Bang. And again, over a period of time, the percentages worked out in our favor. And here we are on this complex earth with many complex systems of life that somehow worked out. No one really can figure out how, but that's kind of where we are with a particular theory called Big Bang Theory or uh, the theory of evolution. That's pretty much, and you're thinking, if you're an evolutionist in here, forgive me. I understand it's way more complex than that, but that's where we are, right? So again, historical understanding uh, of Genesis 1, scientific understanding of Genesis 1, but I'll tell you that neither one of those, young earth creationists, Old Earth creationists, scientific perspective, were not Moses' primary point in Genesis 1 and 2. And all of the creationists in the house just went, well then, what are we doing here talking about creation? Well, I will tell you, there is a faith perspective. And the faith perspective is, this is not a science book for 21st century Christians. Never was meant to be a science book. Never was meant to explain old earth, young earth, dinosaurs, fossil records, and everything else. Never meant to do that. It is a faith book. It is a book about God. It is a book about a God who the book about God says he created all things. And it's written to a people of faith, Israel. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He wasn't there in Genesis 1. He instead was received this thing from God and he wrote it for a particular purpose to a particular people at a particular time in the earth's history, however long you think that is. And so if we're going to understand what Moses' purpose was in Genesis 1, we kind of need to enter into the world that Moses wrote towards. Particularly if we can find ourselves uh, really identifying with Israel in a polytheistic pantheon of gods. Because here is where they're at. Like, I don't know where you are, but our era is not the first where people are trying to make sense of chaos. Our era is not the first where we need comfort that has authority in the midst of a chaotic world clamoring for our attention, Moses and Israel dealt with the same thing. And so his main point in Genesis 1 and 2 was not to give 21st century readers a scientific understanding of how the universe began, whether it's Big Bang or 24-hour chronological view, but to remind people of God's power, of his wisdom, and his character. Israel, you see, was under constant scrutiny in the ancient Near Eastern world. Ancient Near Eastern world. You just think about those, that, that title. You could Google a bunch of stuff of just ancient Near Eastern gods, and you're going to get all sorts of information, which we'll run through today. 
But they were under constant threat from foreign people, from foreign gods. And if you look at Israel's history, which we have never done as a church, but just you'll have to trust me, there are three main enemies that they run against in Israel's history. The first one is Egypt. We all probably know that one, right? They have a pantheon of gods by which God doesn't just rescue them out of Egypt with all of these plagues. He sends these plagues and they're a direct attack against the Egyptian gods, if you didn't know that. So you have the sun god of Ra in Egypt. That would have been the one that they were all terrified of. And come to find out, we're gonna, he's gonna be mentioned a little bit here in Genesis 1. So you have Egypt, 400 years of slavery. They're changing their culture over many years, uh, enslaving a people. They get, they get redeemed from Egypt, and what do they do? They then face many other cultures, many other gods, namely the Canaanites, the Canaanite gods. And when you see the culture of Israel growing up in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the Chronicles, right? You start to see a theme that they're trying to be faithful, or some people are trying to be faithful, but ultimately there's this God of Baal. You guys remember Elijah? When he had this, this showdown with the prophets of Baal, that's a false God. Baal was this God that ultimately um, the world around Israel believed that, um, that the crops kind of rose and fell whether or not Baal was happy with his people. So in the fall, Baal dies in what's called the Baal cycle. Baal dies in the fall, and so therefore all the crops die. And in the spring, what would be the spring for us? Baal is resurrected, and therefore all the crops come to life. And every year, Baal goes through this cycle of death and life. And so in order for him to come back to life, it's not guaranteed. They have to go worship Baal in order for your crops, your livelihood, your success you got to go worship Baal. And you see this all throughout Israel's history. But it's not just Egypt. It's not just Canaan. It's also when they went into exile with Babylon. Babylon had many gods as well. The chief god among them, the creator of the sun, moon, and stars, his name was Marduk. And so you, I'm, I'm giving you all this as this background because we're about to enter into the ancient Near Eastern world. And you're going, okay, it's, it's January 2nd, man. Like... Wow, this is already a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. We're, we're here. If you need to run it back on the tape, we're doing that too. But nonetheless, we're here to worship a king and a God who wrote this in the midst of a culture. And for us to understand it properly, we've got to enter into that culture, right? So Israel struggled in this polytheistic, powerful world. And guess what? They had an inferiority complex. If you look at the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament, they start to do things that are a little bit like us. And if you, I'll just, I'll explain it like this. In the beginning of the nation of Israel, um, they look at the, the nations around them and they go, we want a king. We would like a king. Everybody else has a king. We also would like a king. And Samuel basically comes to them and goes, hey, look, this is the word of the Lord. Let me prophesy this to you. If you have a king, they're going to take your daughters. They're going to take your sons. They're going to take your taxes. They're going to take your money. They're going to rule over you. It's not going to go well for you. Also, you're denying the God of all creation as your king when you take this human king. You still want it? And they go, yeah, yeah, sounds good. I would like to be like everyone else. I don't know about you, but I think that sounds a lot like us. I think that sounds a whole lot like us. When we look, we don't maybe serve the gods of Marduk and Baal and Ra, but we sure serve the God of comfort and the God of certainty, playing those percentages, and the God of approval, 
Got to get on that Instagram. And the God of achievement, got to tell everybody what we just did. We, this is our heart. It's on display. It's in this culture of Israel, of the ancient Near Eastern people. And so our, for our world is certainly not so far removed from their world. And Moses' answer to them is also the answer that he has for us. You need no temple to false gods. You need not to fashion a, a, a god of silver or gold to remind you of God's power. You know what you have as far as the reminder of God's power? Not a little statue or a temple where you would go to worship. It's everything that he ever created. So when you go to a ranch or you go hunting like many people are doing right now even, and you look up at the stars at night and you go, our reference point is, oh my gosh, you are so powerful. You are so good. And then I have a reference point of Genesis 12, which we'll eventually get there, that says that as numerous are the stars in the sky, so did God promise that Abraham's descendants would be that numerous. And I'm a fulfillment of that promise, if I believe. My kids are a fulfillment of that promise, if we believe. We have that narrative. When the ancient Near Eastern people walked outside and they saw the stars in the sky, they didn't have that narrative. They thought, are my fortunes good in 2022? What will the astronomers and astrologers and the personality profiles tell me that an Enneagram 8 should do this year? I like the Enneagram, but that's pretty much somewhat some of the, uh, uh, the similarities of how we use it. I'll just give you an example. My son, this week, we were with some friends, probably three days in a row, he came inside and he goes, well, got frustrated this person again like, Moses, bro, you don't have to live up to your namesake and be all angry all the time. Like, what's going on? He goes, well, you know me, I got anger issues. You're seven, bro. What is going on? What is he saying? He's saying, I'm made like this. I get excuse for any anger that I have. Don't we do similar things as the ancient Near Eastern people do? They look at the stars, they look at the sun, they go to the sky, and they make sense of their life based on whatever translation they make of what they see. God is giving us something far greater. Now, after that long introduction, let me invite you to ask three questions of the text. Three questions of Genesis 1 that will help us make sense of this new year. One. Whose God is sovereign? Two, who's in control? Three, where is my comfort? Whose God is sovereign? Well, let's read Genesis 1 and 2 and understand what Moses is trying to tell us. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If you didn't read it, there is trouble in Genesis 1, verse 2. That the earth, that God created the earth, it was formless and void. Already the 24-hour uh, literal young earth creationists are in trouble. Got to figure out what to do now with Genesis 1 and 2 already. But nonetheless, that again is not the point of what Moses is trying to make. What he's trying to make is that everyone is looking at the earth. Everyone is looking at the stars, the sun, and the moon and going, who's going to take control of all this? Who has 
control of all this? Who reigns as supreme over all this? And what we're going to find through the structure as well as the content of Genesis 1 is that Moses is answering us, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping, perfect, beautiful God that you've heard about all your life, He's the one that reigns over it all. So let me see if I can unpack this a little bit. It does say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the question. Who's going to reign this world? Who is sovereign over us? Well, in the beginning, there is nothing. If you believe in the Big Bang, there is nothing, and you're a Christian, there is nothing that happened before God. So God was before Big Bang. God was before your billions of years. Or if you're a young earth person, God was before that started six, 8,000 years ago. Okay, wherever you stand and how you understand how the earth came to be, in the beginning, God. He is the uncaused cause of everything else. If you are a believer, if you believe in the Bible, if you want to follow Jesus, that's all, all the first page of the book, God, the eternal one, the only eternal one, stands before all things. But again, Genesis 1 and 2 isn't just about God as a creator. It is also about highlighting God as creator, but also how every other God that they would have encountered isn't the creator. So let me skip here and go to this. That there is this, what is called a polemic. Anybody heard of a polemic? If you're an English lit major or teacher, you might know what this word means. It's ultimately a war of words. So as Israel is going to fight against all these gods over their history, Moses writes this down to wage war against those gods. It's not just to tell us how this thing came to be. It's also a war that he is waging with words against these other gods. And I'll tell you how it unfolds in the structure, and then we'll get to the content. Structurally, if you look at these pages of the Bible, if you have your Bible, open it up. Because you're going to get lost if you don't. If you don't have a Bible, get it on your phone because you're going to get lost if you don't. Because we're not going to pull all these up on the, on the scriptures, okay? Genesis 1 should be easy to find. Genesis 1. I want you to just see this because if you don't see it, you'll go, okay, I don't really know what he's talking about in like 30 seconds. So the earth was formless and void. It was empty. What Moses is now going to write about, in parallel days, he's going to provide form and filling. It was empty. It was void. Now he's going to form it and fill it. Follow me now. Day one, God said, let there be light. That is not the sun. That is not the moon. That is not the stars. There's just simply light. From what? We don't know. There's form here. He's structuring the universe in day one. Day one, let there be light. Go down to day four. What does he do? Day four, the day one is in verse three. Day four is in verse 14. And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for the signs, for the seasons, for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and to give light upon the earth. And it goes on in verse 16. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. He forms it, let there be light. And then there's this parallel going to verse 4, let there be lights. Okay, now day 2, we're going to the next parallel. Day 2 starts in verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Okay, this is, most people believe that there was waters in the sky and waters on the earth, and God divides it and makes the heaven and the seas. And so he's making the expanse, heaven in the earth, again, form. Go down to verse, uh, uh, chap, or, sorry, verse 20, day 5. So he makes the waters, he, he, he divides the waters of heaven and the sea below. He, feel, he has this form of things that he's creating. And now what, he do, what, he do, what does he do in verse 20? He fills it. Now let the waters swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Are you seeing this? There's a form and a filling. Day one to day four. Day two to day five. Guess what's going to happen next? Day three to day six. Day three. Dry land and vegetation is formed in verse nine. It says, And God let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let them dry land appear. There is there is sea and there is land there. Verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation plants, yielding seed, bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its own kind. Day three, he's creating a couple of different things. Then in day six, what does he do? He fills the land. Verse 24, and let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. Day one being parallel to four, two parallel to five, three parallel to six, and on day seven, rest. That's the point of what Moses is trying to make. And you might be thinking, well, what's the point of that? So glad you asked. Moses' point is that though the ancient Near Eastern communities has some cute ideas about how this place came to be, the earth was once formless and empty. And God and his creative work formed it and filled it with everything that you can think of. So I want you to just think about this. If you're walking in the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, you're, again, you're looking up at the skies. At one point, you may not be thinking, is what story I've been given true? Because that's a very modern understanding or way to think. Instead, back in those days, you're just accepting what is until Moses comes along, until these Israelites come along, and they have really only one temple where they go to sacrifice things to atone for their sin against their God that they can't even see, silly people. And yet God comes through and goes, no, we don't need to see God. Everything is his handiwork. The earth is full of his glory, declaring his praise. Both the earth that we stand on and everything else that's in it. The form of it and the filling of it. The God of the Bible is supreme and reigns above everything that ever was, is, or is to come. So friends, don't get bogged down in the debate of young earth creation, old earth creation, big bane, evolution, because Genesis 1 really doesn't cover any of it. Not in its, not in its early uh, context. The point of Genesis 1 is to show us who is sovereign, 
who is supreme, and our God is the all-powerful, all-sovereign God over all things, and there are no accidents in creation. If you read all of that, each according to its kind, each exactly where it's supposed to be, each doing exactly what it's designed to do, there are no accidents in creation. And so, friends, if I could ask a question to just kind of bring us home in, in this first point. If he brought order out of chaos, form and filling and meaning out of what was empty and meaningless, how much more is he doing the same in your life? As intricately designed all of creation is, as meaningful and intentional every single detail of the earth, every creature that is here, how much more is every detail of your design? of your story, of your circumstance. There are no accidents. There is no percentages. It is what God wills. We believe it or we don't. Our God is sovereign. That's the answer to question one. The answer to question two, or at least the question two that I'm asking is, who's in control? Again, Moses is waging war through this war of words, and it's not just the structure, but also the content. So let me briefly go through them and then compare them to the the culture that he was in. So don't use a lens of science, but instead use the lens of this polemic, this war of words. Genesis uh, uh, 3 through 8, days 1 and 2, where you see God creates light, right? He creates light, he separates the light from the darkness, and he recognizes that darkness is bad and light is good. It's these expanses in days 1 and 2 of heaven and earth. You see, pagan mythology would have claimed that their gods live in the heavens. And what Moses is saying is, oh, cool, Your God lives there? Well, my God created your God's house. That's ultimately what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. He is determining what goes where. He's splitting the heavens and he's making boundaries so that we can understand, they would have understood that no matter what you believe about whatever God it is over time, our God created that place. Day three in verses nine through 13, what you would find is that there are waters and heavens um, gathered together in one place and let the land dry, uh, the dry land appear, right? If you look at, again, day four, uh, no, yeah, uh, the second part of uh, three in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. You see, this is a direct polemic war against Baal. Again, this This God that would have come into season, there's this cycle that you can research online that he dies and lives. And so what he's saying is, man, your crops don't depend on Baal. Get those Asherahs out of the temple, he will say over and over and over again to the nation of Israel. Your life is not dependent upon false gods. Your life is dependent upon the one who governs everything, every season. God is clear that he provides the vegetation. In day four, verse 14 through 19, what you would see is that there be lights. And and you notice it never says the sun and the moon. You know why? Because almost every religion back in the day would have had major names for the sun and the moon. Most religions over history worshipped the sun. And God here is just his way of saying, yeah, yeah, I don't even give that guy a name. Like that's how that's he just kind of fits in this long list of things that I've created. You're going to make a name for him. He's just he's just a light. We're just going to give him a light. 
It's almost this way of, of just kind of putting down these understandings of these gods. And day five, right? This is my favorite. This is my favorite. You ever wondered why there's a, a, a creature called Leviathan in the Bible? It's not just the really bad sci-fi movie of like the 80s. Um, anybody else? No? Anybody else get subjected to this by their father? No, just me. Okay, perfect. Um, Robocop was in it. That's all I remember uh, before he was Robocop. But nonetheless, you ever wonder why there's Leviathan in the Bible? Because he is in the Bible. Again, ancient Near Eastern culture, these gods that they would have understood, that God in day five is ordering, if you just look, just, just give me just, just another minute here. Let the waters swarm with uh, swarms of living creatures. Let the birds do their thing, right? So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. Why is it the great sea creatures? Because in this mythological understanding, there was this Leviathan, this monster in the sea. And God says, yeah, yeah, I created that. And he comes up later on in Scripture. Isaiah mentions Leviathan. Psalm 74 says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. Why would he say that? Because there was this Canaanite god of Yam. Yam was the personification, this deification of the ocean or of water. And that represented chaos for the Israelites. And the Bible says, man, you, you, you tamed the waters. You broke the heads of the monsters. Job 41.1, when he's answering, I referenced this on Christmas Eve. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook and press down his tongue with a cord? What's he saying? I'm creator, man. I'm over it. the very thing that you fear the most. So the question again is, who's in control? Our God is in control. The gods you see of Ra and Baal and Marduk, he, he, they're all ruled of whatever you think that is. They're all ruled by Yahweh, who created the seas, who split it the, exactly how he wants it to. And so church, who's in control of your life? In 2022, who's in control of where you're headed? Who's in control of your kids? Who's in control of parenting? Who's in control of that job that you're fighting so desperately to keep in crazy times? Who's in control of where you move or whether or not you stay? Who's in control of jobs and children and health and governments and pandemics and politics and troubles and inconveniences and that, that, that meaningless stoplight on the way here on Mason Road? Who's in control? <laughs> not the government. No, the Bible would say God put these people in charge for a reason, to develop our trust in a sovereign, absolutely in control God. Finally, may we not look to our circumstances to be smooth, but when they're not smooth, what is it that will comfort us? Where is our comfort Throughout creation, God forms order from chaos. He sets boundaries for creation, and he calls it good, and he blesses it. Throughout the passage, in verse 4, he formed the light, and it was good. In verse 10, he formed the heavens and the earth, and it was good. In verse 12, he formed vegetation and trees, and it was good. In verse 18, he filled what he formed with the sun and the moon and the stars, and it was good. In verse 21, he filled what he formed, the heavens with the seas and the birds and sea creatures, and it was good. God filled and formed the earth with all creature 
with all kinds of creatures, and it was good. And he did so again with humanity, and it was good. God's perfect creation was nothing less than good. So what happened? We're going to get there. A couple weeks, we'll get to Genesis 3. It's going to take a little bit to get there. We've got to unpack Genesis 2. We've got to go back and understand what God wants for every human on the earth. And then we'll get to Genesis 3, the great fall. That's what's wrong. That's what's difficult. That's why there are things that we don't prefer, certainly things that cause us to wonder about the character of God. But our God is a God of life. Our God is a God of life, not death. Of light, not darkness. Did you read it earlier? The true light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. When the word became flesh... He is a God of order, not chaos, and he gave all these things limits for our good. Where is my comfort? The New City Catechism, if you want to do something cool and new with your kids this year, just download the New City Catechism on your Bible or on your, on your phone, and it asks you a question a week. And the first question is, what is our only hope in life and in death that we are not our own? but belong body and soul both in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. How so? How so? In life and in death? In sickness and in health? In, in, in perfect health and in the midst of pandemic? This is our hope. How so? If you're, you're creator and you're sovereign and you're control of all these things, you can make all this go away. You don't need a vaccine. You can just boop. But our, our, our hope in life and death is in you. Colossians 1, 15 and 17 says this. He is the image, the Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, meaning he reigns supreme over everything. Now check this out about Jesus. Where's our comfort? It's in Jesus. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created so if you read the Old Testament and you go, well, that God is real angry, and you get to the New Testament and you go, I like Jesus a lot better than the Old Testament God, Colossians tells us he's in Genesis 1, creating everything. He's the agent of creation, Gen uh, Colossians tells us. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. I don't know what you're going to go through in 22. But I'm going to bet you. It's to form you into the kind of person that will be for Jesus. It's to form parts of you. If the darkness is bad and the light is good, he is pushing darkness out of you through every circumstance, good and bad, smooth and terrible, so that we can be people that ultimately represent how good and gracious and sovereign and powerful our God is. Our hope, friends, is not found in smooth circumstances but in the God of all creation, creating in us a fortified faith through every circumstance. And we are not subject to the chaos of myths. We are not given to things, hear me now, like stars. We are not given to things like tarot cards. If you're dabbling, stop. 
Angel cards, I had to talk to somebody years ago about angel cards. They were worshiping angels based on angel cards. They would find a feather on the ground and go, I just feel like the angel's telling me. I go, throw the feather away. Angel's not telling you. Not even personality profiles, y'all. To determine our fate, our fate, our well-being, our flourishing in every and any circumstance is determined by the God who flung the world into existence by His Word. And He determined that it was good. Our ultimate hope is found in the Word who was in the beginning and was with God and was God, and who enters into this creation by dwelling among us, becoming flesh. And occasionally, Jesus showed up and He showed His creative power over this present place by walking on the sea which He created. By feeding the multitudes food from bread and fish that He created. So of course He can provide 5,000. That's easy. Of course, he can walk on water. Of course, he can get in the boat, and the, the disciples all think they're going to die, and he goes, shh. And it does, because he's, he's creator. And these little stories just are, are beautiful reminders of a good and great God. Of course, he can restore sight and function to lame limbs and, and many other miracles. It was only a hint of the kind of power that is on display in Christ Jesus. So, if Jesus can do all that, he can walk on water, he can feed the multitudes, he can fling the stars into the sky and order our lives, designing every little system in our body to work just so, how much more? How much more your life? How much more is he intricately designing, intimately involved in every difficulty, brother? And to every beauty that you will see in this year, how much more is He here? How much more is the narrative that our God is sovereign, in control, and good for this next year? I, I'm just talking through all of you today. How's your New Year's? Good. What you got planned for this year? I don't know. We'll see. Me too. We will see, won't we? Another year of pandemic, it appears. But our God is good. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. Let's pray and remember these things as we look at the sun, at the moon and the stars, at the ocean, at the every living creature, the platypus. Go look at the platypus. Go Google the platypus when you get out of here and go, I don't know, but Lord, you're crazy. <laughs> Kristen Madigan doesn't even believe in platypus. There's not even a thing that she believes in. And yet God's infinite wisdom is on display. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to go anywhere else for wisdom. We don't want to go anywhere else for instruction, for purpose. Instagram's going to rot our souls. Facebook's going to take us away. Snapchat, lies. Whatever the next platform is, equally terrible. You created the heavens and the earth for us to thrive in. And we don't want to serve other gods by comparing ourselves to the other people and saying, we just want a, we just want a life like theirs. We want, a, we want a king. 
We want something else to rule us. We don't, we don't yeah, all right, fine, creation, great. We want something else to rule us. We want something exciting and fun in this new year. We don't want anything hard and difficult and invisible. Doesn't seem like he answers my prayers or show up in my time of need, even though he says he does. We want the God that's always on the sea. We want him now. Lord, deliver us. from every form of idolatry in our hearts. Help us see that you are far better than whatever we have fashioned for ourselves. Let us consider, consider the ant. Let us consider the grasshopper. Let us consider the human eye. Let us consider how things work because it's not by accident. It's not by some crazy process because you said it would work that way. It's because you designed it. So whatever narrative detracts from that narrative, we don't want to believe in it. So deliver us. Deliver us from comfort and safety, and certainty, and achievement and success, and power and approval. May we be people that are captured by the one true God who created all things through his Son, for his son and make us Lord into a people that want to follow you in all of life. It's in Christ's name do I pray.